0: The state of this world grieves me. You share that sentiment at times. Sometimes the condition of our country, of our world, man, it just, I mean, grief, I think is the right word. This year, just in America, just our country, well over 600,000 babies will be aborted just in our country. And our country is just a drop in the bucket. According to uh, an international team of researchers and statistician, as of this morning, there have already in 2021, there have already been almost 10 million abortions around the world as we march on our now routine number of 40 to 50 million every year. That grieves me. There's not 40 million people who live in Canada. Like we we abort greater than the population of Canada every year. That grieves me. But our government promotes sin encourages sin that our government seems to label biblical Christianity more and more as as hateful that grieves me now the main problem with our government though I think is one of its biggest strengths because the main problem with our government I don't believe is smoke-filled rooms and shady cabals who are secretly controlling things. I think the I think the main problem with our government is it's a reflection of the people it governs. I think the main problem with our government is it's elected by Americans and our society is a mess. And that grieves me. It isn't new. Moral decay has been a steady problem since Noah got off the boat, right? But the state of our world, the state of our country, as we revel around in the wrath of God. And in the last book we studied, chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Romans, that's what Paul taught us. The moral decay around us is not what someday is going to earn us the wrath of God. The moral decay around us is the wrath of God. It's what we're being judged with. As God says, oh, you think that's what will make you happier than following me? Have at it. It's the wrath of God we see around us. It's not just some fireball that's going to land someday. We live in the fireball. And it grieves me. But you know what grieves me more? You know what grieves me and bothers me way more than all of the sin out there of a world gone mad? What grieves me more is when all of the sin out there saps the joy of the Christians in here. I'm dead serious when I say that when I see, when I hear Christians who because of current events, because of sin of people out there somewhere that they don't even really know and have never really met are seemingly unable to live a life that shows joy. That breaks my heart because that shouldn't be. You remember the story of the very first Christmas? An angel showed up to some shepherds. And the angel said, I bring you a message. I bring you a message of good news that brings great joy. You know what the gospel brings? Great joy. Now when? When? Is the gospel only, is it only able to bring joy to the believer when the rest of their life would have brought them joy anyway? Or is the gospel much, much stronger than that? The gospel. The gospel is powerful enough to keep our joy buoyant, when the rest of the world is circling the drain of the wrath of God. When I see Christians seemingly unable to express, to live in joy, I I want want to kind of shake them and say, is the gospel so small to you that that government policy that that world event, that that whatever can can take away your joy? Because, folks, when we don't live in joy, it is not the world that has taken our joy away. It is we who have given it up. Is your joy, if you're honest, is your joy... Still dependent upon what's going on around you in the world, we should be honest. Sometimes, right? And because that's true about us, you know what we need? We need the letter to the Philippians. We need Paul's letter. To the believers in Philippi, we call it the book of Philippians. It's what we're going to start today. It is the book of joy. This book that we're going to study over the next few months, we call it Philippians. It's different than Paul's other letters. We just finished Romans. It's very different from the book of Romans where Paul was writing to a bunch of people he, for the most part, didn't know. He, well, he wanted to explain to some people he didn't know what he believed. That's the book of Romans. Philippians is way different than that. Philippians is way different than the other letters we have that Paul wrote to different churches. Because those other letters were written in response to, uh, to a crisis or some crises, some crises that were taking place in those churches. In Colossae, the Colossians had all kinds of crises. And so Paul wrote letters dealing with those crises. Um, To the the Galatians and the, oh, that was Corinthians. I said the wrong city there. That was Corinthians. To the Colossians and to the Galatians, they had a crisis. They each had a crisis in their theology, what they believed about the gospel or about Jesus. So Paul wrote letters to them dealing with, That crisis. The Thessalonians had a crisis about their eschatology. What was going to come next on God's calendar and the impact that should have on us today. So Paul wrote a letter to them about that crisis. There's no immediate crisis in Philippians. But this letter is written in response to a crisis. It's just the crisis wasn't happening in Philippi. The crisis was happening to Paul. See, Paul wrote this letter um, from, from imprisonment in Rome. And as we'll see this morning, as we introduce this letter, Paul knew and the Philippians loved each other very much. And they were so concerned about Paul and his imprisonment. And maybe what that meant for the state of the world, because Paul was in prison simply for being a Christian. And that the winds of change were maybe, just maybe starting to blow against Christianity from the Roman Empire. Before this, all the persecution of Christians, well, all might be a strong word, but generally all the persecution of Christians to this point has been by the Jews, not by the Romans. The Romans haven't started yet, but they're gonna. And that wind of that change as Paul's in a Roman Christian, or is in a Roman prison, It's just starting and he's under threat of execution and the Philippians are so worried about him and we'll see at the end of the the letter Paul's received a visitor from Philippi, a guy named Epaphroditus and he knows they're chewing their fingernails. They're extremely worried about Paul and about where this is all headed. And so Paul is concerned about a looming possible crisis. But it's not the crisis of his imprisonment. It's not even the crisis of his possible execution. Paul's going to say, hey, for me to live is Christ, to die, hey, gain anyway. See, Paul knows better than anyone this world can take your freedom, it can take your livelihood, your job, your financial security. But Paul wants his friends in Philippi to know this world cannot take your joy. And so probably most of the time, chained to a Roman guard, he writes the letter of joy to keep his, his friends from that, uh, from that crisis of joy where we let the state of the world Sap that joy from us. As Christians, we, we live in the victory Christ has already won for us. Right now, the NCAA basketball tournament is going on. March Madness. I love it, even though I'm terrible at predicting who's going to win. If you're watching one of those games, and one team is up 25 points in the last minute, take a look at the bench of the winning team. The game's not over. But you can't tell the guys on the bench that. Right? They're just waiting out the last few seconds and they're already enjoying the victory. That's us, church. That's us. The victory is won. We're up infinity points in Christ Jesus. Paul wants the Philippians to know that this book is about Right thinking leads to joy. Gospel thinking, gospel-mindedness leads to joy. That's what we're going to be studying over the next few months. We're going to start that today. Let's read this. The first couple of verses, the whole thing is printed on your your bulletin, actually. Fits in the little box on the front. Philippians chapter 1. In this book about how to live in that victory even when life is is tough, Paul's going to say, I rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice when things are tough. Rejoice when life is difficult. Rejoice. Express joy. Live in joy when things are difficult. We start that this morning right here. Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy bond servants or slaves of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we just read there is, is the greeting and the salutation. Just let's Let's the readers know who wrote it and, and who it's addressed to. And there's, maybe there's not a ton for us in here. This is kind of standard introductory information. But uh, I think it's helpful. What I want to do this morning is talk about the relationship between Paul and these people in Philippi. Because unlike the last letter we read together, Romans, Paul planted the church in Philippi personally, and we're told that story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story this morning. If you want to read the whole story, I invite you to, just not right now, write down Acts chapter 16. That's where you'll find this story, Um, and it lets us know, I think, why Paul had such a special relationship with these folks. We can tell reading this letter, like, he loved these folks. They had a warm relationship. So here's the story of Paul planting the church in Philippi. Uh, Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. He took three big, long missionary trips. So his home base is over here. This is Antioch. Jerusalem's down here. But his home base was up here in Antioch. And his first missionary journey I know you can't read this map well, but it was all spent. His first missionary journey was all spent right here. And when it was time to go out on his second missionary journey, Paul had a plan. And this journey didn't, it didn't go as Paul planned at all. Paul's plan was to spend, to go into this area. This is a Roman province called Asia, right? Not the continent of Asia, even though it's, this, is, this is what we call Turkey today. And Paul wanted to spend his whole time in Asia. And in the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, told us somehow he doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit made this clear, but the Holy Spirit made it clear to Paul. Nope, not in Asia. That's not. I know that's where you've planned to go, but you're not going to spend your time in Asia. So Paul goes, okay, Plan B. I'll go north. Luke tells us Paul wanted to go up into Bithynia. This is Istanbul right here, so that's, maybe he was headed for Istanbul. That's Plan B. And the Holy Spirit again said, "Nope, you're not going there either." And one night, Paul had uh, Luke says he had a vision, it's probably a dream, and and in this dream, Paul sees a man uh, standing there begging him, "Please come over to Macedonia." and help us. And Paul was right up here, and so that's what he does. I don't know how many people went with Paul. I know at least these four men were along for this ride. Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. And they crossed the Aegean Sea, and that is how the gospel set foot on Europe, on the continent of Europe, and praise God that it did. Because Paul went someplace he didn't want to go when God led him in a different direction. So that's how the gospel got onto Europe. Macedonia is like northern Greece. And Paul's normal procedure, remember when he, when he was down here, see how much closer this stuff is to Jerusalem? Well, now he's clear up here. Paul's out in the Tule's. Right? And his normal procedure is he goes and finds a synagogue. A synagogue is like a church for Jews. Okay? It's a, a place where they, they uh, do kind of what we do, and they study the, the Old Testament, they study Judaism. And Paul would normally, he went to major metropolitan areas, like key cities and regions, um, and he would go to a synagogue. But, but Paul is a long ways from home. He goes to the, to the major metropolitan area, Philippi, and there's no synagogue, apparently. Philippi, where Paul decides to start, very different from any place he's been thus far. Um, Philippi is an extremely Roman place during that time period. It's just ruins now. There's nothing there, but uh, Philippi was the site of an extremely important. Uh, Battle in Roman history and really world history. Uh, Julius Caesar, you probably heard that name. Julius Caesar was was assassinated, and the the guys responsible for that, Brutus and Cassius, they had an army and they kind of wanted to control the Roman Empire, and they fought against Mark Antony, Cleopatra's boyfriend, that guy, uh, and a guy named Octavian, for control of the Roman Empire, and that battle. The decisive battle was in Philippi, and uh, apparently the citizens of Philippi, it's like a hundred years before Paul got there, apparently the the citizens, the people of of Philippi uh, behaved well by the Republic's standards, and they granted Philippi um, the honor of being a Roman colony, which meant they were more like an extension of Rome than just a conquered area. And and Rome settled a bunch of Roman uh, soldier veterans, army veterans there. There was a huge military base. This is a very Roman place. The people could consider themselves rightly Romans. They could be citizens. So when you see a, a picture of the Philippian jailer, he's always dressed like a Roman soldier. Even in artwork, even though Philippi is here and Rome is like here because he probably was a Roman soldier. It's a Roman place. It's an important place. That's where Paul lands. He goes and looks for a synagogue. There isn't one. But while he's in town, he hears, apparently he hears, there's this place out by the river where there are some people who believe in your God, the God of Israel. And so on a Sabbath, Paul goes out by the river and he finds some women having a prayer meeting. And one of the women was a gal named Lydia. Or I'll say she was a gal known as Lydia. What we know about Lydia all comes from this chapter. We know she was rich. She was a merchant, a trader in purple cloth. That's why this picture has her wearing purple. There was a special kind of purple fabric that was only made back where Lydia was from in in what we call Turkey. Uh, The city, uh, well, guess what the region was called where she was from? Lydia. That's why. Now, it's possible that she's Lydia from Lydia, right? I'm sure there's been some, I bet there's been somebody named Juanita from Juanita. We could probably find a grant from Grant. I don't know. But maybe this is just what she was known as around Philippi, but I don't know. But she was, she was a merchant, a trader. Uh, She had to still have ties back to Turkey because the only place this cloth came from. But she had a house in Philippi that was big enough to have servants and host the church. So she was a a woman of means. And and Luke tells us in the book of Acts that she was a God-fearer. And what that means is even though she wasn't of Israeli descent, she believed in the God of Israel. and That's why she was out at this place praying. And Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke show up and they start to tell these women that the God of Israel sent his son. His name was Jesus and he was the Jewish Messiah. He was rejected by his people. He was crucified uh, by the Romans, but really under the wrath of God. The ransom paid for Lydia's sin and for our sin and he rose again to prove that he had defeated sin and death. Explain the gospel, and Paul says, "Excuse me." Luke writes that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Translation: Lydia became a Christian that day. So again, it's important to know about that. She believed in God before this day. Life was pretty, she, she made a lot of money. She believed in God, and maybe she was a pretty good gal. But she was not redeemed until she believed in the Lord Jesus. And that happened that day. The church was born. The first uh, convert to Christianity that we know of in Europe wasn't a European. It was a Turkish gal named, known as Lydia. Paul and the group go back to her house, share that same gospel with her household, and predominantly they all believe and they all are baptized. And that's how the church was born. There's more to this story than I have time to tell this morning. But the next uh, sort of conversion we see, the next Christian we see or person we see become Christian happens because during their time in Philippi, two of the men that God sent Uh, onto the European continent, got themselves thrown in the slammer. Paul and Silas got thrown in jail. This is not the jail that Paul writes this letter from years later. Different jail. But they get thrown in jail, and uh, the authorities have one jailer that they task with guarding Paul and Silas. They say, watch them very closely. Whatever you do, don't let these guys get away because there was a big stink in town about them. So this jailer beats Paul and Silas severely, we are told, with rods. That doesn't sound like a good time. And then he puts them in the the inner cell in whatever this prison was in Philippi, and he chains them there. Our Bibles say stocks. They probably didn't look like, like these things here, but somehow they were chained in place in the the innermost part of this this Roman-style prison uh, after they'd just been beaten to a bloody mess. Have I mentioned that the gospel allows you to have joy even when your circumstances really stink? Because Paul and Silas that night, Luke says, They were praying out loud, and they were worshiping and singing praises to God while their backs bled, and they were chained in place. Luke tells us that other people all over the prison could hear them because their joy hadn't gone anywhere. And Luke tells us something like an earthquake hit that prison. I say something like an earthquake because this had to be something more than a regular earthquake. Because it didn't topple this building. But some shaking must have happened, and whatever this earthquake was, it loosed their chains or these shackles or the stocks they were in. It just plopped them open, and it opened every door between them and the outside of that prison. That's not a normal earthquake, right? And so this jailer who has heard them um, sing and praise all night, the guy who beat them with rods, he thinks, well, I'm in real trouble because they're obviously gone. It's dark in there, can't see. But they've obviously escaped, and I don't think the excuse that, hey, there was this magical earthquake that opened every door between their cell and the outside, and it uh, magically took their, their chains off. I don't think that, that, uh, that excuse is going to hold much water. They're going to think, I let these guys out. And so he draws his sword to kill himself before his superiors can execute him. And then he hears from the darkness in the middle of the night, no electric lights, very inside cell, from inside that cell. He hears these men, Paul and Silas, say, "Do not harm yourself, because we're still here." And the jailer, he asks for torches to be brought in, and they're brought in so he can see. And the people the men he was charged, tasked with. With keeping guard on, they're still there even though they they wouldn't have to be. And the jailer rushes in. He he fell down, trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. And then he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now understand what he's asking there. He's not asking, what must I do to be saved from execution? How do I know that? He's already been saved from execution because they're still there the reason he was going to be executed is if those guys got away and his superiors didn't believe it was a miracle, which they wouldn't have. He's apparently heard Paul and Silas praying out loud and singing out loud and talking out loud. And here's a guy that says, whatever after what I did to you guys, whatever allowed you to have the kind of joy that you've exhibited tonight and stay here when you could have left, like, I want that. What must I do to be saved by the God who has saved you? The answer from Paul and Silas is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And it's open to your whole household. It's open to anyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And the jailer became the second known convert to Christianity in Europe. And Paul and Silas, apparently he's he's got them, he's just tasked with keeping them so he could take them wherever he wanted, I guess, because he takes Paul and Silas to his house. And Paul and Silas, Luke is very clear, they teach the rest of his household, they believe, they get baptized, and the church in Philippi has been born. It was directed supernaturally, because Paul didn't want to go there. Um, and it has grown miraculously. And that, I think, is why when Paul starts to write this, this letter that we crack open this morning, that's why we're going to see the, and read of how much love Paul has for these people. They've been through a lot together. Can you imagine a church meeting? Paul and Silas sitting by that guy that beat the tar out of them, <laughs> praising God together, brothers in Christ. It's the kind of thing that will uh, tie people together. That's the church Paul writes this letter back to. He says, Paul and Timothy are the authors. But very very quickly, we can tell Timothy didn't really write the letter because all the pronouns go to the singular. Paul will say I, not we. Paul's just letting the Philippians know, hey, Timothy's here too. He's kind of getting the band back together. You guys remember Timothy? He's here with me while I'm writing. They call themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. More on that in a sec. And he writes, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. A few things about that. First, saints are not a uh, super class of Christians, just somebody who believes in Jesus. Everybody who believed in Jesus in Philippi, Paul calls a saint. Including the overseers and the deacons. This lets us know that church was organized the way Paul uh, taught that churches should be uh, organized, This word for overseers, um, there's two words Paul uses for this same sort of office or position. uh, Overseers or bishop. Um, The other one is usually translated elders. Same word for, uh, excuse me, different words for the same position. Uh, the, The elders in Ephesus he calls by both names. And then deacons are like the head servants. Um, generally take care of the physical uh, needs uh, of a church body. But here's what I like about this. Paul says, not. I'm writing this to the head honchos, and they should share this with everyone else. He says, I'm writing this to everyone else, else, and you guys can share it with the overseers and the deacons. What we learn from that, I think, is we who are in church leadership are a part of the body more than we are above the body. So that's who he writes to. I want to skip back up to this. Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. I love this at the beginning of this letter. This has to be intentional. Usually when Paul was writing a letter, he called himself not a slave of Christ Jesus, but an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's his general term for himself. But here he's a slave of Christ Jesus. And this might, this may be me reading something into the text here, but here's why I think he stresses that. I'm a slave or a bondservant of Christ Jesus as I write this to you. Here's why. This is Paul communicating, Jesus is my Lord, which means my master, my boss. I just go with joy, wherever Jesus leads me. And I do, I I work for the gospel after people's hearts, wherever he leads, and I let him write the script. And I think he wants the Philippians to hear this. And in Philippians, if that was a good thing, when, when God led me to Philippi, it's still a good thing now that God has led me into a prison. Because I may not have wanted to be sitting in a Roman prison right now, but I didn't want to go to Philippi either. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I go where he leads and I minister for the gospel and go after people's hearts wherever that is and it's always good. Whether that's a coastal Macedonian port city or a Roman prison and then Paul's introduction or greeting goes this way grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Paul says stuff like this all the time it's become standard grace and peace they always go together but there's a reason that's become the standard the grace of that comes from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope of mankind. Grace just means getting good stuff you don't deserve. The good stuff we've gotten from God that we don't deserve is forgiveness, redemption that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ because he was punished in my place. Once you have received the grace of God, and by the way, would you like to receive the grace of God? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a free gift that comes to all those who believe. Once you've accepted the grace of God, it should turn into peace. It comes with peace with God. Paul told us in Romans, we now, we have peace with God. That means peace Because God was angry at Jesus, he's no longer angry at me when I stand before him. God's completely satisfied with the punishment that was poured out on him. He has no more condemnation left with me. And if I'm at peace with God because of the grace of God, that peace, that shalom, that contentment, that sense of well-being should begin to take over in my heart. And because of the grace of God, if I have a growing peace in my heart because I have peace with God, guess what should begin to come out of my life? Joy. That's the rest of this letter. Gospel thinking about the grace that comes from God and the peace I have with God starts to bring joy out of the pores of my life. So Paul's writing to his dear friends, the Philippians. They were gravely concerned about Paul and the state of the world. And Paul began to be concerned about their joy levels. So chained to a Roman guard, Paul will write things like this. Hey, for me to live is Christ." and to die as gain. Paul will write in this letter things like, hey, I can do prison. Like, I've learned to get along when life is great, which is harder than you might think. I've learned to get along when life is great and I have plenty. I've learned to get along when I'm in poverty. I've learned I can do, what? All things through Christ. Who gives me strength? I can even do prison. Paul will write, Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Okay, maybe you're right. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again: Rejoice. He'll write, Do not be anxious about anything. In every situation, as you bring your request to God, do it with thanksgiving. Here, I I want you to know, brethren, that my situation here in prison has actually turned out to the advantage of the gospel. The whole Imperial Guard and all the soldiers and all the, the prison guards and the warden and everybody, they know that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. The gospel keeps us from despair. The gospel keeps us in joy because through the grace of God the gospel has given us peace. And the world cannot take those things away. So it cannot touch our joy. That's where we're going. Keep coming back. I love this book. We need this book. If you're honest, how's your joy level? Are you court low? You need a joy change? Let's see if we can't pick that up a notch over the next couple of weeks. I can't tell you. Your earthly circumstances will be better by the time we get done with this. But I will tell you, if you take this to heart, put this to work in your soul, you will have more joy when we are done, regardless of what's going on around you. Let's pray. Father God, uh, that's my prayer for us while we study this book, that you would increase our joy. Whether we, uh, in the meantime, there may be someone here who gets a diagnosis they don't like. There may be someone here who has uh, another accident that was unforeseen. Somebody might lose their job. Um, Who knows what might happen? But Lord, we walk in the closing seconds of victory that's already been guaranteed. So teach us to rejoice through this letter of joy that others around might see our joy and like that Philippian jailer think, man, I want that. But we will not be an advertisement for your gospel if we do not have joy. So grow that in us in the coming months, God, to your glory and to the benefit of those who need the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just you stand and we will finish.